here with my headset on, and I, like, totally fucking forgot I was doing a podcast until the music started playing in my ear. I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) (coughs) 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 Lady Holder's off having a a life. Um, She went to the movies. I have no idea what she's seeing. Um, Jilly will be my guest this evening. We're going to talk about... um, consequences and plot choices and characterization and we do this um this topic has come up before but i think it's a really important one to explore in a lot of in a lot of ways in a variety of ways so that if you didn't get it the first time maybe you'll get it this time or you'll get it the next time or you know it's just like a um we're gonna um we're gonna drown you in this information basically until you get it so um, I'm going to put Jilly on the air, and we're going to get started. And I do want to let you know I still have my cough. Um, it's not as bad. Like I said last night, I have this whole disgusting mucus thing going on you do not want to know about. <coughs> but I'm taking stuff for it. And so um, it's uh, slowly but surely going away. And hopefully I won't keep it for like six months like I did last time. Because that was some bullshit. Jilly! Hello. Who had me on mute. <laughs> I did. That was a long pause <coughs> while I scrambled for the mute button. Mm-hmm. Try not to drop the phone again. Oh, not no. Not good for it. It's, it's, uh, not, it's not good for it at all. I got water on my phone today. It's uh, My phone's water resistant. I have one of those Samsung. Um, you know the one with that dude in the commercial? He keeps pouring bottles of champagne on his phone. I have that phone. Um, and um, my husband saw it on the counter. He said, you got water on your phone. I said, my phone is water resistant. <laughs> <laughs> and waved my hand. And he was like, oh, honey. <laughs> You know, I went out in a coat once. It was water resistant and got hypothermia. So, um, <laughs> water resistant doesn't mean much. No, I don't have the one that was blowing up. No, and even if I did, I'd have been in the store the day they did the recall, getting a new one. That's I'm right. not that person who shit off like that. I don't need my ass to blow up to go get a new phone. It's just craziness. Mm-mm-mm. Do you want to tell them about your experience with asshole characters? Asshole care. Oh, oh my God. So you don't have to. No. Well, this thing happened this week. So somebody recommended a story to me. But you got to go read the story. And I will not tell anybody what story it was. Okay, so just forget it. And I said. Uh, I said, I don't think so. I'm familiar with the author, and their work is usually not my thing, which is totally legit, right? Not every author writes in a style I like. Some authors really like writing a nonlinear narrative or really like writing an unreliable narrator. It's not my thing. It doesn't invalidate their craft, but it's not my jam. Anyway, so I said, she said, yeah, you gotta go do this thing. So I said, oh. she said, no, no, this one, this one's a really little departure 
different for her. It's an unusual pairing. I think you'll really like it. And the pairing was unusual, and I was I was tempted. And I can't give the pairing also because it's really that unusual. So I'm reading it. And it was an NCIS story. So I'm reading it. And it's supposed to be like a badass Tony story, right? Almost an asshole Tony story. Complete dick. Um, I just I rolled my eyes into a headache. I mean, I'm like rolling my eyes every five seconds. I'm like, asshole, 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 dickhead, dickhead, dickhead. Asshole, asshole, asshole. Asshole, asshole, asshole. I'm like, I'm waiting for the badassery because all I'm getting is assholery. So... Go back to her later, and she asked because she asked me. She calls me. She says, "Did you enjoy? Did you enjoy the story?" And I said, "No, <laughs> just no," because <laughs> I was really annoyed and I had a headache at that point. I'm like, no. And she said, "Oh well, why not? Let me count the ways." <laughs> and there were a lot of plot choices also that hadn't thought through the ramifications of them, um, which is part of our topic tonight. And I said, "You know, and Tony is." He's he's an asshole. He's not a you know. She says, oh well, I really that came across really badass to me. And I said, well, you know, badassery is not an assholery, or, or, or that's a false equivalency. You don't have to be an asshole to be a badass. And you know, actually, a lot of times that level of assholery just kind of takes away from the badassness because it just makes you a dick. And it's hard to appreciate that somebody's a badass when they're just all you want to do is punch them in the face. So. She said, oh, that, you know, she, uh, I don't remember exactly who the segue was into this, but she said that she'd always really hoped that I would write a really badass Tony like that sometime. And I said, I'd like to think that I always write badass Tony. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to say that you don't. I'm like, oh, yes, you did. That's exactly but, what she said. <laughs> that's just what you said. You just said I didn't write Tony as an asshole enough. I mean, come on. So, anyway, so then... It seems like this week I had the um, my 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 Tony story selector radar was on um, asshole mode. And I kept getting all these asshole stories, and it was like, you know, turning Tony into an abusive asshole, even if the person. Even if the person is, is was a dick, even if they did something horrible to him, making him think not just to their level but below it is not good characterization. It's it just because it makes him it makes him unlikable. Or don't mess with my unicorn, man. Yeah, I read don't do Harry Potter either. I felt like I should be protecting Ziva. I have actually encountered. Fix where I'm thinking. You know what? Ziva needs a, ba- a wingman, <laughs> and I don't like her. I don't like Ziva. I never did. And I'm thinking I need to get in this thicket and kick their asses. <laughs> this is terrible. <coughs> and it most often happens with male characters, um, where you see um, a male character cross the line from being strong and resilient to being abusive and cruel. Um, and I have encountered scenes in works that, again, that I will not name because um, often I think the authors don't realize what they're doing um, and don't, and they have kind of a tunnel vision. And I have the same tunnel vision with my own work. Um, I have encountered scenes where 
the male protagonist that's supposed to be a badass was so aggressive that the tone of the scene got rapey. Not that he was actually, you know, threatening to rape this person, but the person was a woman, and there was this level of testosterone poisoning going on in the scene that I actually began to fear for this woman in the scene in a way that only another woman can. And it made me deeply uncomfortable. And that should never be Does your, that make sense? Your, yeah, completely. I mean, I've read, I don't, there have been some time, that it, it happens most often with Jenny, the characters, the women who get in confrontations with, are like Jenny Shepard, um, Elizabeth Weir, Ziva, those characters, it seems like that because they're, they're, Strauss they're portrayed and Criminal as, Minds. Yes, and Strauss. And because it's because I think because they're portrayed as strong women in their shows, um, as assertive characters, it's like authors go way off the deep end in confrontations with them. <coughs> and even and, and, and you, these women, they, these women are usually in the wrong in these scenes, which is fine. I have no problem with them being in the wrong. I have no problem with them being even demonized. I don't have a problem with any of that. But because these women are assertive, strong characters with a lot of personal power, authors go completely nutso in the confrontations with them to the point that they're being physically intimidated or um, you feel like their gender is being used against them as opposed to having a level confrontation. And it just, it is, it's very uncomfortable. It's like, why, why, why is this going this way? You yeah, know, it, why, it kind of it kind of hits you in the gut, and it makes you just kind of go. Well, instead of turn the page, it's like put the book down, you know. And you know, and it's and it's all about the tone and about the language and about the movement of your characters in the scene. Um, and always, always, when you have a male pro- protagonist um, confronting a woman, um, even if she's fucking evil. Uh, you have to mind the physicality of the scene, and you have to um i mean unless you want your protagonist to to look like um a bully a dishonorable jackass who abuses women and and that's when yeah. it comes off like it, it it's and so there there has to be a I'm reminded of a scene that I wrote in Broccoli Lowell where um, Harry kills Molly Weasley in the in the prologue of that story. He goes to the burrow and he kidnaps Ron and he kills Molly. But I was very careful with the physicality of that scene to never, ever... Molly was not a victim. She was an adversary. Now, Harry kills her, so in that respect, she's a murder victim. (laughs) But I didn't victimize her in the scene in that she and Harry, you know, Harry addressed what she had done, but there was never a moment where her gender mattered. 
at least in my mind. Maybe people, other people took it differently. <clears throat> I didn't take it that way. I mean, I didn't take it that her gender was an issue. She was just an adversary that um, had they had a confrontation with Builder. I mean, that was it. There was nothing about and that confrontation also, would have gone down any different if Arthur was in the chair. She's also the only woman that Harry kills in that pic. Unless you count the soul rendering of, of Hermione. Which we don't. No. I, Harry, I Harry counts it, but the rest of us don't. Molly is the only woman that Harry kills in, in Darkly Loyal. And it's not about um, her gender. It's about her actions and um, the epic amount of betrayal that he suffered in her hands. Um, so it's not... Um, um, gender politics are, are very tricky, um, as I've been talking about a lot lately with um, my work on um, <gasps> Azure, you tart. <sighs> Do you see what she just did? You don't have messenger. <gasps> oh my gosh. You're going to have to go back Oh my to that god. Shit. Oh my god. Azure has just surpassed me to first place in Everwing. I may not get over it. <laughs> but back to the gender politics. I'll have to get over my personal trauma later. Um it's it's there are striking moments sometimes I I I see in fix where I go, "Oh, whoa, what'd you do?" That's what. Back up. Try again. Um um Abusive language. You need to be really careful when you're using um, when um, there. I love the term SmackDown. I love it. <laughs> if I could just strike it from the English language, I would. But when you come into a situation where your protagonist is going to um, to, to lay down some truth on people. Um, I think it's important to give them a high ground, so to speak, in that um, while my characters may curse, they don't often curse other people. Often. I mean, it it happens, you know. Um, But those are choices that I make. Those are distinct choices that I make. It's not off the cuff. Um, And when you have a character moving through a scene like Harry or Tony or Rodney, (coughs) especially Rodney, I think the characterization of Rodney in Stargate can easily go from strong and assertive to abusive. Um, Verbally abusive. Um, and, And the thing is, is that in canon, Rodney's character does often, often um, cross that line. Um, but I work very hard to make sure uh, that I confine as, as much of his personality on that front as I can because I consider that um, that's a distinct character choice that I made when I first started writing Stargate that I would... Um, confine Rodney 
in such a way that when I wrote him, I would keep his foundation, but I would blunt his edges a little um, and take out what I considered um, a deep and, and quite frankly, ugly flaw. And that was his verbal abuse of people he thought um, were stupid. Now, granted, he still goes off on people in my stories. People <laughs> seem to really enjoy that. <coughs> but there's a line, right? There's a, there's a. I've softened his language. Well, and you also depersonalized it to a degree. Um, I mean, not always, but a lot of times, the people who Rodney refers to people as being stupid often is. Um, it's people he doesn't even know their names. Like, he doesn't call Raddick an idiot. No. Um, no. And the fact is, is that through the, through the series, um, the writers did a lot to soften the character of, of McKay. Um, but... I think Rodney was more. I think Rodney was more popular than they expected him to be. I think they never expected him to be one of the more popular characters on the show, and I think that the softening of him was in response to fans going, "We really love this character, but we wish you'd make him just a teeny bit less assholeish." Some sometimes, right? He's just a little bit too much of a bully on occasions, so you need to tone that down. And it kind of feels like that they were they were. they were adjusting that dial because of how fans were reacting to the character that they didn't expect fans to like. What's really interesting about that is when we meet um, McKay in SG-1, he is kind of a mixture of um, sarcasm for sport and charming. And then he's like a knife on Stargate. When you when you first meet McKay on um Atlantis, um he's he's and maybe this is a choice they made because of the Siberia thing that they made him kind of bitter and cruel. Maybe. And his and his um tone is biting. Um but then as as his friendship with John um evolves over the series um, John kind of softens him, which is really interesting, um, considering the fact that um, John is very static and very. Um, uh, are you just static? He's um, he's very much a static character. So you see Rodney softening over the series, and John's like a mountain. He's not. <laughs> it's gonna take a it's hell of like a lot John more than a new friend. It's more like John is the the water and Rodney's the rock, and he's just smoothing out the more John runs over him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But not much of anything fucks up John's stride. <laughs> it has to be like creative um, insults versus aggression, because um, there's there's honestly nothing worse. Um, to me as a reader is going into a scene where I realize a character that I really enjoy like Tony has been turned into an instrument of abuse
And I don't think, and, and, and the thing is, you know that those authors are not writing, um, at least I don't think. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're not writing these stories thinking that they're making Tony abusive, you know, because there's no abuse tags on the story. Abusive Tony Ahoy, you know. And they think of Tony's getting in his own back, but the way we get our own back is not, at grown-ups, is not to abuse other people. Um, and, you know... That that's kind of like writing from from a from a you know a four year old place who's gotten their toys taken who wants to throw a toy at another kid because they're angry, you know it's very writing from a very sort of primitive emotional place as opposed to the way grown ups handle um, differences of opinions is we don't abuse other people at least we're not supposed to be abused to other people just because we have a disagreement or because even when they do bad things to us we're not supposed to. Um, turn around and do, you know, equivalency has never been a good idea. <laughs> we've never we've never held that up as a good thing, right? You don't, if people, you know, if someone is tortured, you don't turn around and torture the torturers. You, 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 there's the difference between retribution and justice. And so, you know, I think that a lot of times people get more into a retribution mode when they're writing as opposed to a justice and mode. You and you can it, do that. Need to tag you it. totally can. Just know what you're doing. You know, know what you're doing. Know that you're making Tony abusive, and do it with intent. Because if you don't intend to make him abusive, I mean, there was I read a story where I was like, by the end of it, I was going, huh? You need to save. You need to save Ziva. <laughs> That's right. I wrote to the other story, and I wanted, I wanted, it was so hard not to write the author and ask, did you really intend to make Harry worse than Voldemort by the end? Was that really your intention? If, if you because, did, you succeeded. I mean, it, I, it, it was so stunning because what Harry did to Voldemort was worse than anything Voldemort had ever done to anybody else. And it was like, that, that, and he said, I felt kind of ugly. I felt kind of dirty, icky by the end. And I was just kind of like, I, I don't think. And, I, and sometimes I get curious and I go read the comments and I'm like, what do people think about this? People are like, oh, how great it is. And it just feels so viscerally satisfying. I'm like, okay, we need to stop letting our ids out to play. It just. <laughs> yeah, I had to look up idfic. I had no idea what idfic was. That's not just that's that's the reader's id, you know, too. The reader's being so satisfied by Harry being so horrible. It's just like, whoa. Yeah, but I worry then about you, you go people. Look at the comments on Darkly Loyal, and you're thinking, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, um, but you, you don't have anybody. Is there a fine line between months. dark fiction you don't have anybody and dark comedy? Well, but it's not even dark. I, I, just, I think there's just a difference. Is Harry's Harry is is had you could call your story the reckoning. It is it is just a sweep through. We're going to clean up the wizarding world, you know. With it, it, we're just going to do what has to be done, and people are going to die, and that's the way it is. And other than the deaths themselves, the acts are not that egregious. I mean, yes, murder's terrible, but set that aside for but a second. Some people just need it. Right, people just need killing. <laughs> But when you torture someone for months, I kid you not, months, 
that is not that is not okay. That's not okay behavior. And then come out the other side talking about victory for the light. It's like, oh no, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We need a different definition. Not what happened. But yeah, so people when we make these choices and you make choices about and I think there's nothing wrong with if you if that's what you want to do, do your thing, do whatever it is you want to do, just do it deliberately. And I mean, sometimes we read things after the fact and we go back and look at it and go, wow, there's stuff between the lines there that I wasn't consciously aware of. Um, and that's some you know all of our subconscious comes out to play sometimes when we're writing. Um, but uh, you know, I would you know when I get to there've been a couple of times when I've had Tony get into it physically with Ziva in stories, um, and it always makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Even though I actually have absolutely no problem thinking believing that Ziva would attack Tony, I have a really hard time with him dealing with her physically because it makes me uncomfortable um, writing men fighting with women. Um, even though she totally brought that shit on herself, <laughs> but you know, it's just it's just one of those things. It's just a personal thing. But um, that's really funny because when I wrote that scene where Steve cuts Ziva and threatens to cut her head off, um, in Ascendant, uh-huh. I wasn't at all uncomfortable. I thought I, would I, see, be I wasn't uncomfortable reading it. I wasn't uncomfortable I thought reading I would be it really deeply uncomfortable when I plotted it and I thought, okay, I'm not going to be able to write this, but when I, it was like, it was smooth as silk. <laughs> it didn't bother me at all. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but, <clears throat> I think it's because um, for me, Steve is um, in that like a very honorable um, person. Um, this is a man who knows who his guide is and he's spent all these months without his guide so that Tony could be comfortable. And then when Tony needed him, he immediately got on a plane and was there. Yeah. You know? And it was never about what Steve needs. It's about what Tony needs. Um, from the moment he landed, it was about what Tony needed from him. And so, um, and and putting him in that position, um, um, in the in the the role of caretaker and protector, it was easy to see him responding to Ziva this way. Um, but if he had sought her out as the aggressor, it would have been different. But she yeah. entered his space. She came into his well, space and threatened his guy. And he was a highly trained assassin, so it's you know he wouldn't dismiss the threat she represents, especially if she was coming at him with aggression. So. Um, but when you have a character like Ziva is kind of is in a, one of those areas because of the kind of physical training she has and how dangerous she is physically. Um, physical confrontations with her, I can. It depends upon how they're written, but I can get through them. Because I mean, I've 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 read stories where Tony and Tony and Ziva just go at it physically because she attacks them. And I'm totally fine like with it. Like full on Mr. and Mrs. Smith? <laughs> <laughs> Except without the kissing and the making out. Um, and fucking after. Yeah. Right. 
but uh, yeah. So that, but but when he's when when Tony's verbally abusive, to people, I can't deal with that. But when, um, um, but like when you have a bunch of men or whatever confronting like Jenny up in her office or whatever, you have like Secnav and Gibbs and um, Vance all confronting Jenny or whatever. I'm just pulling names out of a hat here, and they're like all standing looming over her. Well, that's just not appropriate. Everybody needs to sit down. <laughs> but more than that, um. All- I have read situations like that where um, a bunch of men confronting a single woman, and it does get it. It, it does create this primal, visceral um, fear in me that is. Um, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, you well, you need to slow your roll. There's a moment in ties that bind. Um, when John and O'Neill and Rampart are in a room with Sam Carter. And I originally wrote it that way with just those three men and Sam Carter. Um, I didn't write it that way. I plotted it that way. But when it came time to write it, I could not do it. Um, which is why that, that that's how Anteldi ended up in that room. Um, because as twisted and as fucked up as Sam Carter is in that story, I put myself in her position in the moment I was going to write that. And I realized, oh, God, I can't do that. I, I, I really cannot do that. Um, even if in that moment she wasn't being treated as a woman, she was being treated as another dom. This is a situation where there are four doms in a room. Their gender is completely irrelevant to the plot. This is not gender politics. This is dynamic politics. And this is four doms in a room. Um, but my own societal issues came into play and when it came time to write it it was still three men and a woman in a room and the woman was about to be physically punished and originally I plotted it that John did it and (coughs) I couldn't write that either I had to remove John from that moment because and what's, what's really interesting because later on you know um um I had no problems with John getting very physical with with, with Summers and punishing people um, who have earned those punishments. And Carter more than earned hers. She more than she more than earned that what she got in that room. Um, but for some reason, I it was a moment of characterization for me and John where I said, "Okay, John can't do this." That this is not something that John can do, um, and to, to this, I, I, to this day I, I can't really put into words why I couldn't have John do it when he had every right to do it. Uh, so sometimes you just have to trust your gut on it. <coughs> <coughs> 
I mean, I kind of get it, like, you know, sort of like a visceral level, but I don't know that I could, I mean, I, I certainly didn't write it, so I certainly can't speak to it with authority, but I, as a reader, it makes perfect sense to me, but I couldn't even explain why. I just kind of like visceral level, I go, yeah, it makes sense that John didn't do the punishment, but why? If somebody said, why does it make sense? But like, I don't know. I don't, I don't have know. to explain it because I didn't does. write it. <laughs> it just does. Go with it. Um, and so it's important when you make these very distinct decisions um, that you follow through with them. Well, Dark, that's Dark says um, when with, with, with Summers he was in control, and with Sam he didn't feel like he could stay that way. That's how I wrote it. But if I wrote it differently, you never would have thought otherwise. Because that's the excuse that John gives in the in the in, in in that moment is he doesn't feel like he can do it without hurting her. But I could have definitely wrote it in such a way that he delivered the same punishment that she got from Rampart. And it would have been completely natural because that was what was plotted, and it would have slotted right into my plot, and it would have been no stumble. And but when I made that very distinct characterization decision for John in that scene, I had to follow that decision throughout the rest of Ties That Bind. I had to spread it out completely over his characterization from that point forward. And a lot of times you see characters, <coughs> you see authors making very distinct decisions for their characters and then not following them through. Yeah, it's actually, I think of the care both the, two of our favorite characters are the, probably two of the the worst abused in this way in in um in fandom which is Tony Donozo and Harry Potter which is where people change something significant it, 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 actually we're specifically talking about characterization so we'll talk something about it, in their life that affects their character and then um doesn't have that affect their behavior or affect the way anything there's no ripple effect it's like it's just they change this one thing to achieve a plot point well then what that winds up happening is instead of that feeling natural is that character change winds up feeling contrived to achieve a plot point because it has no ramifications to the story other than to achieve that plot point so like if you give if you give um um Um, if you give uh, Tony a supportive, loving family that he's grown up with, is he going to have the same kind of neurotic behaviors that you see in canon? Would canon play out the same way? No, it really won't. I mean, I if you actually to me if you change something that significant, significant as his family, I think you have to go all the way back to. Um, would he even have ever wound up in NCIS? I mean, I would deconstruct it personally to that level. But even if you didn't, even if you took the path that he eventually did wind up at NCIS somehow through some magic and you just kind of skipped over those steps, a lot of, I the way I've always interpreted Tony is a lot of his um, behavior are defenses that keep people at a distance. Nobody really gets to know the real Tony ever on the show. I mean, there are moments, well, not ever, but there are moments when the real him, you know, peeks through 
when he has moments when he's just emotionally broken down and you see something real in him. And those moments are pretty extreme. Um, so most of his his front is about him keeping people at a distance. Well, he's got um, a strong, supportive, loving family behind him. Is he going to behave the same way? No, he really isn't. And so if the supportive family is just there to show up at some critical moment and yell at Gibbs, McGee, Ziva, whoever, and nothing else is different, it will feel contrived. I think one of the rawest moments we see with Tony, it happens really early on in the series, and it's the Jeffrey White thing when he's sitting in the car after he shot mm-hmm. Jeffrey White in the head. And mm-hmm. Gibbs is right there, and Tony says, I really liked him. Yep. And there's this rawness that Michael Weatherly delivered in that moment. It was just like, wow. Look at you, kid. <laughs> Look what you did. <coughs> <clears throat> and it's really it's really powerful if you um let yourself really look at his face and the way he's holding the weapon um it's just it's really really powerful which is why um when we were doing um um when Jillian and I were kind of going back and forth doing tags for um different episodes that that one popped immediately into my head that I wanted to do one for chained um, because of that moment right there where Tony said, I really liked him because that's really, you know, and I think, I think, I don't, I think this in emergence, I think that it gives us Tony what his first serious significant moment when he thought about leaving NCIS was and I think he says it was over the Jeffrey White thing. I don't remember my own work that well, but I know Jeffrey White comes up because he was really destroyed by that whole case. And Gibbs is just like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, Gibbs was sort of Gibbs about the whole thing, and Tony was really just sort of destroyed and felt kind of adrift. And um, and I think, you know, I think it's a matter of Tony's characterization that the more that every time he um, – that when he would have those sort of raw, vulnerable moments, that Gibbs would kind of shut him down, Gibbs makes him have those raw, vulnerable moments less and less and less. Now, he does have a really raw kind of vulnerable moment in Season 7. I think it's Season 7. Is that when um, Obsession happens? Did you ever see that episode with the reporter that Tony became totally obsessed with? No. Okay, so there's an episode. Actually, it, there's there's a really good NCIS story that it stems from this episode. There's a really good episode, there's an really interesting episode of, of later, I think it's season seven, where Tony becomes just, he, just, just there's something about this woman just really entrances Tony, and she's missing. And um, there's a big old, forget the, the big old plot isn't really, really, the back plot isn't really interesting, but there's, the people are getting poisoned with ricin, and there's no treatment for this. And she's one of the people who's been poisoned with rice, and she she knows she's she's gonna. He doesn't know she, know, she doesn't know she's gonna die at that point. He doesn't know he's, when they finally find her is when they figure out that she's been poisoned with the rice as well. And so he's been watching like videos of this reporter, uh, seeing her news coverage, and he's just 
like totally entranced with her. And then when they finally find her and get her to safety, he finds out she's going to die. And so the case had become really personal for him. And so he'd gone totally off the grid. He'd like dropped out of sight. He hadn't answered his phone. And he'd found this woman. He figured out a way to find her when they hadn't been able to find her through conventional means of investigation. And she comes and she meets Tony based on a voicemail that he leaves her. And that's when he figures out that she's got the ricin. She's been poisoned with ricin, and she's going to die. And um, he brings her to this place to see meet Gibbs and the team. And Gibbs doesn't say anything to him about it. Later, Tony goes to Gibbs, um, Gibbs' basement after the case, and he stayed with her at the hospital until she died. And um, he uh, goes and sits in Gibbs' basement, and he's just a wreck. He's just a wreck, and he talks about he broke the rule, whichever one of Gibbs' rules about about not making it personal. He talked about he broke the rule about not letting things get personal, and he just admits that to Gibbs, and Gibbs just admits that he, it's the rule he's always had the biggest problem with, too, and then the episode's over. And it was probably one of the best moments between Tony and Gibbs in the whole series. And it was a really profound episode for Tony, even if his obsession was a little bit weird. Um... Does anybody else find that plot really familiar? It feels familiar, but I think whatever it is familiar to came after it, because this would have been, if it was season seven, it would have been around 2009 or early 2010. It's Numbers. Episode 21. There's an episode of Numbers where Colby Granger gets... Absolutely obsessed with this woman he sees. Right, with the female um, reporter. Yes, right. that, they're, that, that they're looking for. Uh, except Colby's reporter was a horrible person when they finally met her. <laughs> right, right, As I recall. right. Whereas the girl Tony, the reporter Tony, um, was obsessed with. She actually was a nice person, um, but she died anyway. Um, Anyway, someone wrote a short um, about that. Um, it was a Jen thing. It was like a Jen short thing after um, about obsession, where um, Gibbs realized as as he's reading the wrap up reports in the middle of the night that the method of poisoning, the way the assassin had been poisoning people with ricin, that the assassin had been alone with Tony at one point when he read the report. And it occurred to him that there weren't early symptoms of the ricin poisoning. And so it occurs to Gibbs in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night reading these reports, that Tony could have been a victim of this assassin and they don't know it yet. And so he shows up at Tony's apartment with Ducky. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he does. Ducky gets the car. Get the car, Ducky, get the car. For ricin poisoning. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just these little pellets that are injected in the skin. So Mm -hmm. Ducky. Tony's like, what are you doing here? He's like, so he explains, he's like, so what, you want me to, like, strip down, let you guys search me or something? Gibbs is, like, uncomfortable. Pretty much. Yeah, basically, yeah, get undressed. Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's Take it all the night, off. Man. <laughs> but it was such a good moment between them. Um, but it's moments like that kind of, but the kind of characterization that, um, when you combine moments like that with Tony's kind of sort of jovial, you know, nothing ever gets to him um, 
sort of the deflections he puts up, it kind of paints a really layered picture of somebody who had a really complicated, difficult path to keeping people at arm's length kind of on purpose and probably doesn't have close relationships very easily. Um, and you just it's just, if you don't change anything about his, if you don't, if you decide if you're not going to have the ripple changes in canon and the way he behaves in canon, like you have everything in canon proceeds the same way, and yet somewhere in season five, Tony's husband and four children show up. And I have not read this story, so to my knowledge, it doesn't exist. But if you have that happen, it creates this dissonance. Like, well, how can Tony have this incredibly rich family life where he's super happy and be so neurotic at work and work all the time and put up with all of Gibbs' bullshit and be willing to take all this abuse when he's got all this great stuff going on at home? Because we always assume that Tony puts up with all of that crap because of his own neurotic kind of like these insecurities he's got or whatever. Or, But if he's happy and well-adjusted, why would he put up with this shit? So... You know, it just you got to think these things through. Like, how would this occur if you change something that seems little, seems minor? I'm going to give Tony a, a living parent he's really close to. It may seem minor, but that can have huge consequences. Or I'm going to make sure that Harry grows up great in an awesome relationship with Sirius as his dad. And then he's going to go to Hogwarts and have the same fucking first year he had in the books. Really? Is that really what you think would happen? That Harry would show up to school so... Insecure and downtrodden that he'd still make the best of friends with Ron Weasley. That he would go hunting. That he would tolerate that little bully. That he wouldn't have immediately contacted his dad when he found a three-headed dog. (laughs) Of course. (coughs) (coughs) That he would have tolerated Snape's abuse. Because I have to tell you that a Harry Potter raised by Sirius Black would not have tolerated a single moment of Severus Snape's abuse. No. No, 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 no. <clears throat> One way or another, Snape would have got owned. If he didn't have any hair the next day, <laughs> something fucked up would have happened. <clears throat> But it's like I think sometimes when we're when when we're considering a ripple effect is you kind of there's there's different ways things ripple, right? Because it's like I'm gonna if you're gonna change um um a canon event, like if you're gonna change the way something went down or you're gonna change um when let, let's say you're gonna change that Gibbs didn't get blown up on on that ship at the end of season three. And so you're going to change how that summer went and what the ripple effect would be, which would mean if you start rippling that out, okay, well, if Gibbs never was gone, Tony probably didn't pick up the undercover assignment. Um, it's odd, it, kind of even odds that one guy would have gotten convicted wrongly. You know, so you kind of just said that when, in that kind of case, you kind of just start looking at um, how, how does that ripple out through canon? But, there's more to consider when you're when you're making a change like that than just 
That was a teeny tiny text. I can't see it. Um, when you when you're making um, like some changes, you have to consider. Um, you have to look at it differently than just the changes to canon. Like what? How would things play out differently? So, and I talked to somebody once. They had a, they had a story idea. And they actually and and they gave me permission to to reveal this piece of this piece of information. But they had a um, a story idea, and I thought I thought conceptually it was really interesting. Um, and ultimately, they set the story idea aside, even though they found it really intriguing. As they found the consequences that once they thought through all the consequences of the change that they were making or proposing to make, um, that. Um, it wasn't. It was either, it just what didn't work for them anymore. So they decided it was. It was. It was. It was. They didn't. They didn't like the effect that it had on Steve. It was a Hawaii Five-O idea story. They didn't like the effect that the changes would have on Steve as a person, as a character, and how it would change him as a character and his development. And that is like, that is really an example of really considering the consequences of a change. And what the change, what she wanted to do, was. Um, have Tony be stationed in Hawaii and as part of another operation catch Hess when he's going to kill John and, and, and sort of as a byproduct basically save John um, McGarrett. So Steve and Tony would eventually meet. But then how once you – so then you have to start – so the ripple effect of that is astronomical if John is alive. It is not a little change because John's death is what brought Steve to Hawaii. And out of the seals, right? So if John's alive, you can't just then go. So there's an inclination to then go, okay, John's alive. How does that change the first episode? No, 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 no. You got to back up and go, John's alive. Does Steve ever even come to Hawaii? That's like the first question you have to ask yourself. So if your intention is to get Steve and John, Steve and Tony together, does the change you made just just completely invalidate the premise? I mean, would they would they meet when Tony came to when Steve came to retrieve Hess? Would Steve, would Steve even have to retrieve Hess because he catches criminals? He doesn't go and get them when they're already in NCIS custody. You know, um, so the ripple you know effect what? of that. I have a I have a bunny. I have a bunny now. Fuck your friend. I mean that sincerely <laughs> in the best possible way. If your friend is listening, I didn't mean it that way. I meant it nicely. Fuck you. I'm sure she's glad. No, but seriously. But seriously, what if instead of okay, so say Tony saves John's life. But Hest has already grievously wounded John to the point that John ends up perhaps in a wheelchair. And instead of instead of Tony catching Hess, he interferes in what's happening and he has to make a choice between catching Hess and helping John. He chooses to help John. Hess gets away. Steve comes to Hawaii. John lives. Steve still comes to Hawaii. Yeah. I hope you're listening. I look forward to reading it. 
You're welcome. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, because that creates a situation where John lives, um, but he's grievously injured in such a way that Steve, as his only son, is going to come running for two reasons. One, holy shit, this asshole fucked up my dad. And two, this asshole fucking got away. I have to go deal with this. You know? Yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of thing you have to consider because when if if John is perfectly fine, if he's totally okay, nothing's wrong with him, and that was the crux of the issue, is we went we talked we we went through several you know rambling kind of discussions about you know what ramifications and permutations would be of um, John living, and a lot of the you know, the threads, when she pulled at them to see where they went, led to a place where she didn't like what they were doing with Steve. They didn't like what they did to Steve or where his characterization would be or what he would be like in those circumstances. So it led her down a characterization path that she wasn't comfortable with when she started pulling on the threads of those changes. And so she decided not to go with that idea, although you may have reignited her her passion for this, for all I know. Um, I hope so. I hope so. It's a a really brilliant concept for how to get... (laughs) It's a brilliant idea for how to get Steve and Tony together, but it it is a complicated... It seems like such a simple thing. It seems like a really simple thing when it's proposed. What if I have Tony save John? And it sounds simple. And you start pulling at those threads, it, it is incredibly, incredibly complicated. Because if the, the 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 change you suggested, where Hess gets away, Tony doesn't catch Hess, he helps save John instead, and where John is still quite wounded, solves a lot of the problems. But if you don't have those that adjustment, I when you start pulling at threads, it's like. Steve and John are going to just butt heads in that scenario. You go to scenario number two. Okay, more head butting. Scenario number three. Okay, head butting. Scenario number four. Um, you know, Steve just leaves the islands and never comes back. You know? <laughs> it's like, what is going to keep Steve in character um, and make the story work? And, you know, as she was, you know, just pulling, she wasn't really happy with it or the direction that was going. So, I'm glad that she let me bring this up as an example um, tonight because maybe it gave her a different idea for it. Well, the thing is, we know that Hess shoots John in the head. What if Tony interrupted that and instead of hitting him in the head, he hit him in the neck and he ends up paralyzed or he gets hit in the back or, um, you know, just um, grievously injured in such a way that um, Steve has to come home. You know, um, he has to take care of Hess. But I had a really interesting idea for um, Hawaii Five-0 where John didn't die at the hands of Hess and ends up, um, the governor asked him to form a task force. And so when Steve comes to Hawaii, um, he finds out his dad is running a government task force for the state and his dad named it Five-0 after him. Oh, that's Since really that was sweet. his, 
And um, I don't know what I would do with it. It would be a very sweet romance kind of thing. Maybe Steve comes home injured. <laughs> Tony's there. Because that's my, that's my mothership, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> yeah, it is a mothership. That's one of those things you sometimes, and sometimes that's what you need to do with an idea. If you get an idea that seems simple, you start pulling at the thread, and it is just like it, you pull, you pull, you pull the thread, and some, the whole sweater unravels. It was like, whoa, dude. That's not <laughs> that's what I meant to do. That's a complicated thing. And then sometimes you just need to bounce the idea around with someone else who has a different perspective, and can go, well, but what if you make your if you modify your idea and you do, blah. And you get this instead. And I um, had a moment in my plotting for Hold My Coffee where I, I did something in um, Battle Ready that I um, actually started in the part before, um, coping mechanisms, whatever I called that one, strategies, coping strategies, um, where Meredith's father makes an appearance and he ends up being um, someone who's been recruited by the trust. And I, I was because I never had. Um, McKay's father on screen I thought it would be really interesting to explore that In a father-daughter dynamic um, And to put her in a place of strength um, And also to give her a little bit of closure Before she leaves Earth You know Just to <coughs> Just to really solidify Her Her mental her landscape, I, I, I guess you would say. And I was really proud of what I did with um, that and was battle ready. And I was like, yay, I'm, I'm great. I'm moving on. And then I realized, oh, well, shit. If the trust would cultivate her father, why wouldn't they cultivate a multi-million dollar defense contractor named Patrick Shepard? And I was like, fuck me. What have I done? <laughs> Because that's consequences, right? Because of course yeah. they would. Of course they would. They would absolutely talk. They would absolutely target John's father. Um, so I had to replot. It was oh, it was so infuriating <laughs> because I was so <clears throat> focused on creating this moment for Meredith where she she really owned. Um, herself and her situation that I that I did that and that, but then I created a series of consequences, um, logical consequences that I could have actually overlooked if I'd have wanted to, but it wouldn't have been realistic because those are logical consequences, right? Every I mean, lot, there are lots of vulnerable people who are outside the SGC that would be vulnerable to the trust. <coughs> <clears throat> and Patrick is one of them. Well, Patrick and David specifically, not so much Matt since he's a medical doctor. Um, he's not really involved in that kind of thing. But David and Patrick both are um, defense contractors, and they're um, very wealthy, and they're in positions of um, – technology-wise, they're in positions uh, that, that is exactly what the trust is looking for. Wealthy men and if you approach Patrick in the right way and tell him 
that the government is once more risking his oldest son's life to the point where he may never see John again. And if you use the grief he already deals with against him like a weapon, yeah, that'd be very easy. It'd be profoundly stunningly effective. Because Patrick already resents the government and he uh, deeply, and he already resents the core for what has happened to John and John staying in, um, and you know, and like I said in, in one of the um, episodes that um, John feels like his whole family's kind of still stuck at the memorial service, that they're all still in that moment where they buried an empty coffin in Arlington and they're not really getting past it. So it would be very easy for the trust to to prey on that. And mm-hmm. once I had that realization, I had to go back and replot to um, to fix it so that Patrick wouldn't be vulnerable to the trust. Um, <coughs> <coughs> that he would be taken, you know, that, that that just wouldn't be something that could happen. Because, um, you know, this is something that you that I realized. <laughs> when I was starting to write the next part and I was just like that's damn it <laughs> what have I done <laughs> so I had to stop and replot and rework a little bit and um, write again and um, <clears throat> I'm pretty happy with what I've done as as far as that goes but it was a realization of consequences so even for someone like me who, who plots well in advance and who plots um, with a great deal of thought, and um, I I make very distinct decisions about plot events and characterization, um, I can still fumble the ball, is, is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, we all have that kind of, we have an intention, and we have our main character. And, you know, those can be like blinders between what we intend to be doing and focus on our and on our intense focus on our main character, it can, we can be completely blind to everything else, you know. Which is one of the reasons why it's a lot easier to catch that stuff when you are, you know, people think that that stuff doesn't happen sometimes. It's, you know, people make comments that this doesn't happen. This is how this doesn't happen to you. Oh, you think it doesn't happen? It does. It's just you typically, for the most part, are seeing completed works from me, where I've gotten feedback about them or had time to read them and go back and fix this stuff. Now sometimes this stuff happens loud in front of everybody on Rough Trade, but oh um, god, that's it! <laughs> like oh look at that fucking plot hole! Oh my god, <laughs> look what I did! <laughs> Although I have to tell you guys, sometimes I'm almost a little bit offended when nobody notices my plot holes. Not that anybody's going to be sitting there running around and pointing it out, but I've had conversations with people and I'm talking about oh my god, this plot hole's killing me, and they'll go what plot hole? And I'll be like, you know. <laughs> Are you even paying attention to me? Are you even reading my stuff? Are you even reading my story? What the hell? (laughs) Go read it again. Oh, my God. But but a lot of times, a lot of times, um, I see a problem, especially in Rough Trade when I'm doing with the the rough work, I see a problem that a lot of readers won't see because they're not seeing the whole picture. They're not seeing a completed work. So they are... Even if subconsciously they they've noticed a problem, they expect you to solve that problem b- before the story is over. 
it's a different mindset when you're reading um, on on rough trade because these people have been around long enough to know that you're they're reading number one a rough work, number two that that is literally the first draft and things are going to change. <coughs> so there's a lot of um, freedom, I think. <coughs> so I'm sorry. Hold on a minute. Talk, Julie. <coughs> Oh, talk. <laughs> I thought she said stop for a second there. Yeah, when you when when there's um with 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 rough trade, I think where she was going with that is there is a lot of freedom with rough trade to to make mistakes, to to just you know get it out there and know that you're going to be able to go back and fix it. But on the on the and just you just kind of you know you're you're just writing. There's something very you feel very exposed, but it's also very liberating to just get it out there and just be as good or bad as it is and just let it kind of let the chips fall where they may. But at the same time, there are those these moments where you're like, for being as liberating as it is, there's also those moments where you're kind of just kind of like going, oh, my God, I just made that enormous mistake publicly. It's just sort of like, I don't know, bearing your ass to everybody. It's, it's massively uncomfortable. It's massively uncomfortable. And then you find out that nobody else saw it, which, you know, and Kira's right, it's because other people don't necessarily know the whole scope of where you're going. Um, but it's uh, <laughs> still, it's like I almost told one of my friends once that I expected an immediate book report to reread that last chapter, and I expected a book report. It's like, come on, you had to have seen that problem. What I was going to say is that, um, like what you said about the, the writer having a lot of freedom on Rough Trade, I think in a lot of respects that readers have freedom there too because they're not um, – they know what they're reading isn't complete. They know what they're reading is a rough draft. <coughs> so they're giving a lot of it a pass and just kind of enjoying what they get. Yeah. You know? Like I know it's gonna be a problem. I know people's eye color are gonna change. It's, it's just one of those things that's gonna happen, and you know, it's just it's like you know. And the thing is, it's like, but typically, typically outside of rough trade, you guys don't, you know, readers don't see when I stumble into a major plot hole, um, where I go, oh my god, I totally didn't notice that I created this huge inconsistency that makes no sense. Um, so, I mean, it does happen. It's just other people don't see it. Or she writes this epic amount of um, unresolved sexual attention. It'll get resolved eventually. <laughs> eventually. Man, I was totally cock-teased, that whole thing. I was like, come on, come on. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? You know, I replot. Also, I, I had to replot some elements because it's this funny thing with that with that particular story. I can't have them having sex while Gibbs has legal control over Tony. I just can't do it. You know? Yeah. So I, agree. I had to re I had to replot um, how that whole situation gets handled because I refused to wait. You know, until the end of the story because this is a lot more to go. Than the slowest burn yeah. ever in NCIS. Um, I refuse. 
a lot of times I I have I've written things where I didn't um recognize um the consequences of my characterization. Um because I plot events. Um and those events can, you know, impact you know, the impact of an event and the consequences of the event. And the consequences can be both external and internal. Um but, <coughs> but <coughs> oftentimes my characterization is off the cuff. Because it boils down to, I guess, my confidence as a writer, um, and I think that um, I I put a lot of um, stock in my own ability as, as far as characterization go, and I do believe that plotting um, off the cuff is my weakness, so I tend to focus all of my pre-writing energy in that area, whereas characterization, um, I don't. Because I trust myself um, in the writing to take care of that naturally. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But sometimes I stumble. <laughs> and you're like, oh, shit. Look what I did. <laughs> Fuck it. <coughs> now i got to replot. <coughs> how, can my, how can my throat be so fucking dry and I be, have so much mucus at the same time? Can someone explain that to me? It's a cruel irony of being sick. Because it's just it's like the, the, I have a desert in my throat. It's the cough syrup you're taking. It's drying you out. I'm actually taking Mucinex at this point. You aren't. You aren't taking Mucinex. You're having a I am taking. When you're not. Other thing you're That's what I'm taking. Yeah. That's what I'm taking. Yeah. I'm taking Mucinex. I'm not taking a cough uh, mess anymore. Just the Mucinex. It has a cough suppressant in it. Well, if, if the cough, the if you're taking the cough, the mucinex with a cough suppressant, it could be the cough suppressant making you a little bit dry. Yeah, it's really it's yeah. really super annoying. Um, As opposed yeah. to the this is the my first time mucinex taking mucinex, actually. So it's working yeah, I don't okay. Take, I don't take I don't take the cough suppressant side of it. I just take the mucinex stuff. I'm sure that was very interesting for you guys. <laughs> we could talk a lot about mucus. I have strong feelings let's about mucus. Not. not as strong as my feelings about pus, so let's not go there. Um, <laughs> speaking of pus, whenever I see the word turgid, I think of pus. So please don't use it to describe a penis. I I never want to see the words turgid erection again as long as I live. Do me this favor. If I, I can put your thesaurus down, it's okay to, I don't to e- use the word hard, okay? For fuck's sake. It's okay to repeat <laughs> words sometimes. You don't need a synonym every five seconds. Whoever whoever started that, I'm a, I just want to find the person in fandom who said that you needed to stop repeating yourself because you have some things you don't want to repeat. You know, this some words do jump out as being repetitive, but some words should just fade into the background, and you don't need to be calling him, you know, the taller, younger yeah. Italian in the room. It just doesn't need to happen. So stop it. The younger man, whenever. The younger man happens in a Gibbs Tony story. I, I, it makes me feel like Gibbs is a pedophile. So please stop. 
I read a story where Gibbs called him the, his, the young boy. In Gibbs POV, he kept calling Tony his young boy. I was like, stop it, gross. Oh, yeah, quit God. It. Oh, God, stop, <laughs> no. stop. Stop. That's a man right there. That's a man. Tony's a grown-ass man through the whole series. And we're not even talking about he was ever, ever a sprout. He was always. <laughs> and please, please don't take Azure's advice. Really, there's nothing wrong with calling it a fucking erection, okay? <laughs> yes, please, please. It was just erection. Hard on, fine. You need, there you go, the synonyms. Erection, hard on. But it's fine. You want to be vague? Hardness? You could do hardness pressed up against his ass. There you go. That still works. No, no man wand. Absolutely not. See the rod of power. That's why Azure is not allowed to name anything. <laughs> <coughs> Although I'm reading something one day. It's just a really disgusting word. It's just a really disgusting word. Which word? Turgid. It was just it just sounds unfortunate. It's sort of like moist. You Look know. it up. Do I wanna do that? Not really. Swollen, distended, or congested. Tediously pompous or bombastic. Does any of that sound like a penis? Does any of that sound like an erect penis? Who the fuck thought that was a good idea? Somebody using a thesaurus <laughs> and they probably use a fucking dictionary too. Just because the word synonym doesn't Look. mean it actually needs to be used as that same word because often there are um, nuances that you need to consider. Yes, definitely. Just because the dictionary says it's a synonym does not mean it's actually the same word, the same meaning. You know, honestly, I would rather hear man sword than turgid. <laughs> I would I'm too. Just saying. <laughs> Although but, every <laughs> single bit of purple prose for a man's cock is better than anything for a woman's pussy. I'm just saying. I remember... Um, I've I've confessed this before, so I'm not really concerned about it. Um, I at one time um, wrote letters for Penthouse for, for pay. Um, I I got paid by the word. Um, and one of the editors um, sent me a list of words that I could use for pussy if I didn't want to use pussy or cunt. And the only one I remember that stuck out for me was box. Oh, my God. And I wrote back and said I was perfectly fine using pussy and cunt. (laughs) Don't worry about it. (laughs) Seeping southern slit? Are you fucking kidding me? I... There goes my show, earning an R rating. Um, <laughs> I, 
I read that that I read that in a in 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 a published work. I was like, I get to that, I was like, what is this? I am disillusioned, <laughs> and I don't know if I should laugh or find something else to read. I don't remember how long the list was, Jeep. I just remember Box being on it, and I was like, Box? Are you fucking kidding me, Box? I'm not calling it a box. What's wrong with pussy? Nothing's wrong with pussy. And for the record, I got paid five cents a word, if you were curious. I had a raise. I got a raise my sophomore year. (laughs) Because I was getting paid like uh, a penny and a half per word. But then um, I got five cents a word. Nice. What's someone asked? What's hot about a box? About what's hot about a beaver? You know, it's all about equal hotness. Nothing hot about a beaver. Nothing. Or a box. (coughs) Although there was a day we were doing your favorite purple prose on a thread on Facebook, and I will never forget Star of Sodom that somebody had put that in. I like, (laughs) I I like spit take all over my monitor. I laugh my ass off of that. It is my favorite purple prose of all time, is Star of Sodom. The Star of Sodom. That's pretty great, actually. Um, Sarah asked, you mean the letters to Penthouse aren't real? They're a mixture. There are actually real letters and letters to Penthouse. Um, there's also, um, I would say, probably 85% of the content letters to Penthouse is written by pro um, pro writers earning um Money on the side. <clears throat> I had um, to mute myself for a second while I while I reacted to Azure's latest share. Oh my god. Shut up. But I actually have heard that too. I have heard the term meat curtains described um used to describe the vagina. I have. Not meaty, but meat. Um, axe wound. What? I have heard it called an axe wound. I absolutely have. Seen it. Not heard it. I I, I saw it written down, axe wound. I know, right? (coughs) 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 Cat. I've I've heard it called cat. You heard what I said? (laughs) Okay, so so, so Dark Dark mentioned that she's made a comment about, so this kind of made me laugh, because she says, the Canadian likes to tell people to please leave the beavers alone. They work too hard to be moonlighting. I had they had saying in Canada, and when I was living there for a while, my my whole family are Canadians. I think I've mentioned that before. Um, Explain a lot about your I, accent. 
I'm absent. I'm, well, I was raised in the South, so my accent's just such a muddle. But I, it is. I, I was uh, listening to conversation kind of half-heartedly one day, and um, I hear somebody say, "Oh, well, he has beaver fever," and I did a double take, and I was like, "What? Are they talking like <laughs> it's like something porno going on over there?" And it's because like totally the wrong person in my family making porno kind of comments. I was like. What are you guys talking about? And um, I guess that they have the issue with like the areas that have a lot of beavers, like if you know certain germs get into the water and it doesn't get filtered well or something, people get ill certain times of the year. Occasionally, this happens. It's called beaver fever. <laughs> but it was just, wow, it was just an odd thing. It's a very Canadian thing. So I was just like, they're talking about beaver fever. Everybody's talking about them having a real problem with beaver fever, and I'm just like, and nobody's explaining what beaver fever is. And I'm like, do I ask what beaver fever is? Because it sounds really pornographic and in a really of tasteless way. <laughs> I want to be the little devil that sits on Jilly's shoulder. Ask. <laughs> Always and then, ask. And then somebody, well, I'm glad I actually did finally ask them. I was like, what is beaver fever? And so I was explaining, and I'm like, and I'm like sitting there, sitting, sitting there with a glass of water, and I was like, okay, can I have a Coke? <laughs> yeah, we're having a problem with the tap water right now because of, because of this problem with there's all these beavers or something, and I was like, hey, yeah, can I have a Coke, please? And then, there you go. You can get it from drinking water from streams up here, find the water. But then I go up there one year for the holidays. It's like, oh, we're going to go to this parade, da 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 and they're going to have beaver tails this year. I was like, you guys are giving <laughs> you me beaver whiplash. What is Do this? I ask? <laughs> I just have moments. Do I, and I have to tell you, beaver tail is like the best thing in the world. It really is. Really, it's sort of like the is kind it actually of, literally beaver tail. It has nothing to do with an actual beaver, but it's just kind of shaped in the shape of a beaver tail. It's sort of, it's sort of a, kind of like the the batter that's used to make funnel cakes, except it's like the shape of a beaver's tail. So there's this big lump of fried batter, and then they put the ones I had had honey and powdered sugar on them. They're really good, but they can put all kinds of things on them. But you know, but you're standing out there in like minus twenty degree weather, and you know, like your consolation for that is beaver tail, and that's not enough consolation for that kind of cold, quite frankly. Especially when what you're there looking at is goats with Christmas lights on them on a tractor. <laughs> it's like what? this is a parade. What? I'm like, what kind of parade? Get another planet. Canada is literally another planet, you guys. Yeah, it is another planet. Well, yeah, but the whole par- whole parade was like tractors and farm equipment, but there were also farm animals. And I was like, are those goats? And there goes a the goat. I'm like, wow, that's a really big tractor. That's not a tractor, that's a combine. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> is there really a big fucking difference at this point? <laughs> well, I, I have no plans to, to use memory. either. All I care right now is I'm out of beaver tails and it's minus 20 degrees out here. <laughs> If I ever have to fucking plow a field, that information will come in handy. (laughs) 
A good lord, is that man hot? He is. And smart. I want to go on record and thank Canada for their contribution. Cause, because, wow. He's beautiful. He's smart. He's liberal. He has an ass you could bounce a quarter off of. Oh, my lord. Thor. Just saying. Wow. Thank you, Canada. Thank you. <laughs> Whenever I get so I'm sorry, Darkness. I go look up pictures. They're polite and they're conservatives. They're saying, I would have to. I don't know. I'd have to bring up Elbow Gate if we want to have the conversation about saying conservatives. It's just he's beautiful to look at. You just go on Google and look him up whenever you look at something you don't want to look at. Forty-five, and um, and it just, he just makes your whole day better. Oh, he does. He does. Sometimes he does stuff that's just like <sighs> you're so charming. When he explained quantum computing, I was just like, oh. oh. I got a total girl Vagina's boner got over, tied all over, over the world. <laughs> I, like, oh. I got a total girl boner over a politician being able to explain quantum computing. It just like nearly did me in. I was like, oh, he's a he's a he's a politician, and he's like, there's like science going on in there, science and math. Wow. Wow. He's got a brain, and he's cute, and he takes the doesn't he take the train to work every day or something like that? He takes public transit. Just lovely, just lovely. I don't know Thank you, Canada. Thank you. Canada. It makes me want to migrate. In a world of crappy world leaders, we needed we need more Justin Trudeau's. But you know, we'll t- we'll keep just as long as we keep just the one. <coughs> so after the sweet ass um, incident. I had to go to the, the store today, and um, my husband got in the car <laughs> when it was time to go to the store. <laughs> so there were no sweet-ass moments today. Well, shoot. Yeah. I'd be like, you know, it's hard to ask but, gays, will you come along with me? As I've Never already mind, explained, I'm too old for that shit to begin with. You're gonna to have to start bragging. Stop bragging, okay? We we realize that your prime minister is fucking awesome. We've acknowledged this and his ass, which is sweet. <laughs> so, stop bragging. We're all suffering. We're all suffering mightily. Yeah, they have they have rules and shit about like the news not being able to say stuff that they know to be false. There's like like legislation laws and stuff up there about that kind of crap. Like, if they know it's false, they can't actually say it. I know. It's like, like, what? You mean they have, like, a truth in, like, news broadcasting? And, like, Fox News in Canada is called an entertainment program. It can't be called a news program. I find, I just, I want a Canada of my own. Well, France may be saying as well, but I don't have a clue what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, at least in Canada, part of Canada speaks English. Most of the, I got, 
I got lost in I got lost in Quebec once. <laughs> I was like, I need to I need to carry a French English dictionary because there's no getting lost in the French part of Canada without one. Oh, so in terms of character, I think it's an example of to go back to our topic. Otherwise, I could just talk about Justin Trudeau's butt through the whole conversation for the rest of the program. <laughs> for the next 30 minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Or we could talk about, we, you know, our, our, we have, we have, we have like, there's like one, uh, we have like one, in the, you know, we have, we have, we have uh, Gavin Newsom. I think he's going to be president someday, but that's unfortunately further away than most of us can deal with. Um <laughs> Anyway, so we were talking last night a little bit about Rule 63, and so we could talk about characterization decisions about um, – um, well, that was an example. We could look at some of the – what it would look, what it would take to, like, make when you're taking a character – and Rule 63, then, because that's, that's characterization choices and impact that how it would have on your plot when you make a choice like that. Um I just look briefly at what it would be like to, and I, I, I honestly have not read a lot of Rule 63 Tony stories. So, um, if anybody thinks I'm picking at their story, I am not. It's just one of those Rule 63 is one of those genres that generally is not appealed to me. I do read it on occasion on recommendation, but in general, gender gender switch ups don't typically are not my jam. Um, Although I don't completely say no to them, so I do read them on recommendation, but it's not something I ever seek out, so I haven't read very many Girl Tony stories. Um, But I was thinking about the ramifications of making Tony a girl, and I actually think that it would change everything. I don't think anything would go down the same for her. If you look at the very basics, one of the earliest things we know about was Tony being shipped off to Military Academy. Assuming that after Tony's mother died, that that um, um, he still shipped him, shipped, we'll say, shipped her off. Would it be the military academy? It'd be a boarding school, right? But you, I mean, I can't. I just, did, I don't. Did they even send girls to military schools in the seventies? Um, no, or it would have been. A, it would have been basically. It would have been a finishing school. I can just picture that. It would not be good. <laughs> yeah, it would not be good. Well, you know, I actually do think, um, and in the one short I wrote where um, Rule 63 is that for every um, male character, there's a female version of that character, uh, or vice versa. For every female character, there's a male version of that character, which is that the idea is that, you know, if you have a male character, you can write a female version of that character. It It sounds better in... It sounds better in in principle than in practice. I think that it comes out in practice, and it's more so that some characters I think are easier to change up than others are. Um, and it probably depends on how much of their character traits, as we see them in canon, are entrenched in their gender identity, and how much is supplied by their gender Rodney. identity. Rodney was a difficult choice. 
Friday but John would have choice. been an impossible, an impossible choice. I'm not sure I could go much beyond what I wrote for that little short for John. Yeah. See, Tony, I spent I spent hours pulling apart Tony's backstory for the one short that I wrote where Tony is female. Um, mm-hmm. And I did decide that his I, – and I actually thought, you know, I thought, you know, girl Tony, um, the relatives maybe – because Tony did look a lot like his father. So, you know, maybe that was a was a off-putting for, you know. And so I went through all this stuff, and I thought, well, what if, what if that wasn't off-putting? You know, if Tony was a girl, well, that wasn't off-putting for um, his mother's family. And so they took um, her instead and raised her. And that's where um, – and so she's raised in England instead. And so she winds up at Interpol, Um and it's sort of, and it's so that when you're writing a character who is, whether you change their gender or you completely change their circumstances, is you have to kind of pick out what is the most, um, what is core to that character. Intrinsic. Um, yeah. What is? Yeah. What's very? What's intrinsic to them? Um, and Tony, 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 John. Um, Rodney, some of these characters are real, really hard to pick that pick that apart um, once you pull their gender out, because a lot of what's intrinsic to them is really closely tied to, or even if you don't, it's hard to man- manifest some of those intrinsic traits the same way when you change someone's gender. So if you say Rod, so that's an easy one. You say Rodney's intelligence is an intrinsic trait. Okay, granted, that's not going to manifest the same way in a female character. It's not going to come out the same way because her, her whole upbringing is going to be different. Um, One so of the I things the I character- did with Meredith it was that, yes, her intelligence came, out, intelligence came out, but when it came time for her to go to college, her mom went with her. Whereas with Rodney, his parents sent him by himself. But Meredith's mom went with her to college. Because, well, there's a huge difference in how female children are treated by their parents versus male children. You know, boys get rough and tumble, girls, you know. I I see it in my sister. Um, She's very, very, very protective of her daughters in a certain way. In that, for instance, if we're out eating and one of the boys, and they're all they're all on the roughly, they're, they're some of them are stepchildren, and so you know, so so it's a mixture of ages from say eight to twelve right now, plus Padawan who's about to turn eighteen. Oh my God, um, um, oh my God, I'm so old. <laughs> but anyway, like if say the eight year old boy needs to go to the bathroom. He can go. Yeah, go. We see the bathroom door. It's fine. Say the eight-year-old girl has to go to the bathroom. Well, she's not going by herself. Some woman at the table is going to get up and go with her. And it's just like it's... um. I do it, too. 
I mean, I I follow my nieces to the bathroom where I wouldn't do the same to my nephew. I wouldn't linger outside the bathroom door for my nephew um, unless he wanted me to. And he most often absolutely does not want me to. Yeah, I have, um, my siblings are, in, are, are oddly, um, so you almost put me in, as the odd man out, but I have my siblings all in gender pairs. So, like, there's a boy and a girl who are in their 40s and a boy and a girl who are in their late teens, early 20s, and a boy and a girl who are preteens, right? So, um, and whatever, it doesn't matter what age what age they are, I do treat the girls differently than the boys. You know, although if the boys go, oh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to go walk to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, you're not. I don't care who you are. Um, but, you know, I'm much, more, I'm much more protective of my sisters, whether it's, you know, um, the 18-year-old idiot who is the most likely to post a, you know, naked selfie of herself, or the 40-year-old who's perfectly, you know, reasonable and and makes really sound decisions. I'm still very protective over my sisters, you know, in ways I'm not over my brother's. Who are probably sending dick pics, but she doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure that's happening. All of them. I have one brother. I have one no brother. Oh, my God. I have one brother. Actually, I did care. Because when I heard that he and his friends, there was this trend on Facebook of um, boys posting pictures. You know, because I guess, I guess it was sort of a counterculture rebellion thing against people posting pictures of their food. It's boys, These boys all started posting pictures of their bowel movements no come on oh yes oh yes oh yes and so i find out about it uh somebody asked if i'm the oldest yes i am um and so somebody, i find out about it and i i gave him a call this is the one that's uh like 22 years younger, 23 years younger than i am i'm a call i was like what the fuck is the matter with you that is gonna follow you around <laughs> the rest of your life you are going to be hearing about that. You are going to be one of those boys who posted their shit on Facebook when you're 35 years old. You get that down. You get it down now. He's like, oh, everybody's doing it. I, I don't care. I don't care what your stupid friends are doing. Because <laughs> they are stupid. I'm going to go on record, dude. They're stupid. Your friends are idiots. That's what happens when you... Boys live out in the country. You don't have anything else to do. <laughs> I can't say jerk around. Look like I can't say jerk off in a circle like normal boys. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can't you guys go have just <coughs> a circle? Jerk would be perfect. It's just like oh, go find something else to do. Why do you guys have to come up with horrifying things to do? Last year, your did you hear what freaking... she just said? A circle jerk would be perfect. Well, it would. The year before, all of his friends were experimenting with cutting. Oh, everybody got oh, razor God. blades. It's like, you're doing what? Put that fucking razor blade away. No, you cannot have an exacto knife for your birthday. What is wrong with you? Next year, shit pictures. I was like, you got to go sexually experiment like normal kids. I would really appreciate it. <coughs> Look, just get your friend to blow you and move on. <laughs> Go have an uncomfortable sexual encounter with your best friend. Have some angst about it. 
that we can just move on with our lives, and I don't have to hear about you posting shit pics on Facebook. Oh, God. Oh, God. Men. Um... He's Man. the one that I bought the because it's like the family motto is it seemed like a good idea at the time, but he's the one we actually went out and bought a T-shirt for because it's just like his whole life seemed like a good time. idea. Every freaking thing, it's like well, she didn't look like no cop, did she? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <coughs> And the reality is, this is a this is a gender thing. But the reality is, is that if a, that actually shit pics probably could hinder a woman's career development, it probably won't affect a guy all that much. But still, no, I had to give him holy hell about it. But if he had posted provocative pictures of himself online, I would have just been like, "Whoa, dude, what the hell?" But my sister Not did sexy. It. It's kind of like when J.K. Rowling told. For Matthew to put his clothes back on on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, sorry, Joe. <laughs> My bad. But look how hot I got. <laughs> <coughs> Nobody saw that shit coming. His puberty hits that kid like a truck. But these are, you know, when you are um, making choices about your character and how you're going to change them, and this really just applies to to fandom, um, when you make very distinct choices, whether it's about their gender or their sexuality or um, past relationships um, and or how they handle stress or how they handle anger or how they respond to a situation differently in canon. These distinct decisions that you make must ripple out through the story. Otherwise, your reader will stumble over it and be like, why the fuck did they do that if they didn't? What was the point? Yeah, why make all this change just to change nothing? You know, you can't, it's sort of like, if you make Tony super competent, I mean super competent and super confident, and give him a super good working relationship with all of the other alphabet agencies, all the way, now early on, okay, he's new with NCIS, but you put him, you, it depends, some of these things, it depends on where you make that decision. I mean, I love super competent Tony, and if you make him so that he is like called on to be, you know, because you see this in some stories where he's like called on to be an undercover asset for multiple agencies, okay. Um, sometimes I see Tony teaching undercover um, skills, okay. Where do you place this in canon? If you have canon going down exactly like it is, and you place all of this wonderfulness that is Tony in season 12, Tony starts to look like an idiot. Because it, he's like the biggest hotshot in the world, taking daily abuse from his coworkers, miserable about it, and refusing to be anything but a senior field agent. 
it just starts making him look like a bonehead. And so the characterization actually starts to have the opposite effect. All this wonderful stuff that he is and the things that he becomes or that you've written in for him backfires and he looks like a dodo. Because why is he putting up – because you can't have him be super confident and great with people and all these other agencies and going to work and being miserable and thinking about how he's tired of being treated badly by his coworkers for the last 12 years. It just it, It's like it creates this cognitive dissonance that you're going, what, what? Why would he do that? Why is he having these great professional encounters that are happening with other agencies and they all want to hire him and they're all enthusiastic about him? that for a dozen years he continues putting up with this angst at work, and you don't ever explain what keeps him at NCIS. It's just it's like, well, I don't understand. Do explain, and it's all about pining for Gibbs. I want to punch you and Tony in the fucking face. Yeah, because that's pathetic. Or worse, it's about Gibbs, but it's not pining. It's just some sort of weird Gibbs loyalty. Which makes Gibbs Tony completely blind and codependent. Yes, very codependent. And you can't have someone who is a badass, who is that good at all of these things, and who is emotionally well adjusted. And you write all this greatness and make him that codependent with someone in a destructive relationship. And he acts like a bozo around Ziva and McGee. For what reason that isn't explained for ten years? It, it just these are the, it's just like you you can you can do it you can do what you want to do, but can you do what you want to do and preserve canon? And usually the answer is if you don't want this cognitive dissonance, the answer is no. But the question is why are you so attached to preserving canon? What is it about keeping canon exactly that way? And I think what is there, there is there is kind of a Every time we see an episode where something happens to Tony where we don't like what happened or we wish that there had been a confrontation, we wish he had said no, we wish he had walked away. And as those moments build up, um, there's this kind of this this urge, this sort of, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of, a, it's, sort of a, it's very an emotional thing to to want to solve that. But it's, this is where you have, have to separate the emotion from what makes sense because you can't, depending on where, where you choose to solve that in the canon determines, um, kind of sets the tone for what you can do. Now, you, I actually think it makes more sense to have Tony doing all these wonderful, great things after he leaves NCIS. And maybe he consults with NCIS on occasion and runs into his old coworkers. You can still have confrontations with his old coworkers. It just doesn't make sense to put him in this pit of misery while he's this shining superstar of the um, law enforcement alphabet soup. It's just, it's just, it actually kind of breaks my brain. And I see it in so many stories where Tony is popular and sought after by the other agencies but he stays at NCIS and is miserable, even though he knows. He knows these other agencies like working with him. He knows that he likes working with them. But he stays, even though he's miserable. 
for kids. I think a lot of fan fiction writers are very comfortable in the box that canon creates, and they have no interest in getting outside of it because it um, it's a scary place to be outside of canon for a lot of people. Um, Which is why right, so many it's of those stories end at the moment of, of, of him leaving. They or, don't have anywhere else to go. Right, so the story ends when Tony leaves or whatever. And that's a big leap to take. Um, <clears throat> but it's definitely a leap you need to take if your goal is to origin, to write original fiction eventually. <clears throat> you need to take that leap. You, you need to... And one of the things one of the things I think about fandom that's really good for writers is that it allows you to explore characters in a in a very safe way, um, and allows you to explore your craft in a very safe way. But eventually, if you want to grow as a writer, and if you want to um, step out and do original works, um, you need to take a leap. Um, and it can be scary. It can be very scary. But <coughs> there's a lot of comfort in a fandom. I get that. I get that mm-hmm. comfort. And if you don't want to leave that comfort, you absolutely do not have to. It's entirely up to you. Um, but one of the ways that you can start that path is to take fandom characters and put them down in original circumstances. Writing complete AUs is is a step in the right direction because if you start building your worlds, eventually you'll be able to build characters. It, it it's a skill that um, these are skills that you pile on top of one another. You don't develop them um, all at the same time. Um, you uh, so if you build your skills and you start at the bottom and you layer one skill on top of another. Um, and that's one of the things I try to, to um, invert and kind of like <coughs> demonstrate on Rough Trade um, and the way I structure challenges is that, okay, I need you to write short. I need you to write long. We need you to write urban fantasy. We want you to write a soulmate AU. We want you to write um, reincarnation. These are, these are um, lessons that if you fully embrace, will teach you different skills as a writer. And one of the best skills, and I've said it, and I've said it, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it again, because it is the biggest problem I see in fandom. It is the single biggest problem in fandom, and that is word economics. Because you can go over to AL3 and find a fucking million word fic, and you'll be like... Yes, as a reader and as a fan, you're like, hell yes, it's a million words and it's finished. I'm so fucking excited. But you can't sell fucking million words to a publisher. So if that's your goal, you need to embrace word economics, which is why um, the challenge in July is always a short challenge because the um, the goal is to teach you to write in short format. Um, And... (coughs) And eventually, I would like to do a challenge in November where the maximum word count is 60K and your minimum is 50. I'm not going to do that this November. 
and we're going to be doing urban fantasy, and I'm not going to do that to you guys. But the point is, <coughs> is that you really need to develop um, word economics if you want to explore original works um, that you could potentially put to a publisher or an agent. Because outside of J.K. Rowling and George R. R. Martin, you're you're not going to be able to sell a 300k thick um, to a publisher. Well, as we discussed, as they a didn't new author, either. yeah, no, not that. Well, especially especially J.K. Rowling, <coughs> she sold a fifty thousand or sixty thousand work novel at first, or however long that first book was. Um, because putting a uh, putting a book in print is expensive, and they're not going to invest in a new writer um, that kind of expense. And it is profoundly expensive. Stephen King started out in short stories. I actually really like his short his, stories. I mean, I prefer his short stories. Um, yeah, it's, it's and he, so I, weird. There were, I, I read and I listened to an interview where Stephen King said that the the, the short story format is a is a lost art. Or it's quickly becoming a lost art. Um, so there's an interesting thing. I think that one of the things that people want to shake out of their comfort zone, um, and one of the things I, I have noticed this thing, and it, and it happens in in more than one fandom where. Um, the point of the big point of change is where the story ends. Start the story at the big point of change. Start it there. Um, somebody said, uh, there's always, a, I think we've said, Kira said before, start the story in the middle, um, which I think people took a little too literally. Uh, I think Kira thinks people have taken oh. that a little bit too literally. Um, Way too literally. Although there was I a really funny, heard... great, one, awesome one where they started uh, mid-sex scene on RT. I giggled. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. It literally mid bang. It was just like yes, they were fucking on a console. I was like hello. I don't know if you're in the chat room, but that was awesome. I love that. That was great. Yeah. Um, but there, but there's also somebody. I heard it phrased a little bit differently, which I think is also the same thing that Kira meant. Was start at the moment when something is changing for your character. Something is um, interesting. Right, because that is. That is the interesting part, right? So you can either build to, and yes, start, but you start at your major change, um, and end at a major <coughs> change. That you could do that. But what if, what if that point of departure? What if you usually are writing to a point of departure where, like, Tony leaves, or, or Harry defeats Voldemort, or you know, whatever, whatever it is, your point of departure from canon is you are writing to the point where you're going to diverge from canon and then you end shortly after that to shake off the canon shackles um so to speak start there as opposed to ending there start a story where you are starting at the point that tony leaves ncis or you're starting where tony where, where um Harry has defeated Voldemort, or, or whatever it is you're going to do start at, start at that moment of change that you would normally write to we're t- we're, and then and then build something that is completely outside of canon, and see what that's like. For me, my the stories I have the most fun with in Harry Potter um, are the ones that are post-canon, um, minus the epilogue, which did not fucking happen. Um, blank space. Uh, is one of my favorite HP stories in that um, I'm kind of starting in the middle. 
because Harry's coming back to Britain. He's been gone for a while, and I skipped over all that and skipped over his divorce. He's coming home with a kid, and there's Hermione, who's pissed off, and coming, she's going to give him a piece of her mind. <laughs> you know, that's where I started. That's, that's, that, that's the middle of that moment. That's the, mo- that, that's the, the event, the catalyst of their relationship where she's coming to his house to be all bossy and shit, and he's so happy to see her, he doesn't care. Because that's the middle. Whereas, like, would say, the unsequel plot, I started at the end. If you think about it, that that prologue is the end. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reader is playing catch-up all through that prologue. And then they land in the past, and um, suddenly um, everything that the characters have ever known um, is actually just really one big fucking lie. So everything the reader knows is one big fucking lie, because I I set the whole thing post-canon with epilogue, and then I destroyed magic <laughs> and everything around it. Um the characters didn't see that shit coming because I landed. And so the reader is, is thrown into that moment with with the character. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> Look what they did. <coughs> it's a moment of change. Like, there's an excellent example on the <coughs> traditional literature, and that would be The Hobbit. Because we start with Gandalf coming to Bilbo and saying, hey, when I go on an adventure, and Bilbo's saying no, and <laughs> shuts the door, and that's the moment. That's the moment of change. Gandalf appearing in the Shire, right? And the 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 you know there are so many places that story could have started that had nothing to do with Bilbo's life changing, but they're not really germane to the story. You know, uh, so I think when we talk, when people talk, where do you, where's your entry point? Is well, where is something interesting happening to your character? Start there. Where is something changing for them that makes this a rel- or interesting story to read? That's where you start. And I think sometimes people write to that moment, and then they stop. And sometimes I think it's because canon is where they're comfortable. And that's okay. I'm totally not dissing that. I've read some great stories that I really thoroughly enjoyed um, that ended at the moment of, of change. And, you know, I would have also really, really, really enjoyed seeing what that change looked like. I would never ask an author for a sequel. I wouldn't do that kind of thing. But there are stories that were great seeing that change come about, but seeing what that change really looked like would have also been great. Okay, we're down to a minute. Um, I probably won't do a podcast tomorrow, but I'm maybe doing one on Sunday. Um, it depends on what happens tomorrow because my mother wants to go shopping, and if she makes me go shopping and my foot hurts, it's just, you know, you guys don't want to hear Maybe you do want to hear that. We'll see. Anyways, um, say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. Shut up and sit down. Shut up and sit down.